I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am delighted to be joined today by Jen Spira, a former staff writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and The Onion. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. She lives in New York City. Big Time is her first book. Welcome, Jen. Maris, thank you so much for having me. It's such a joy. Again, <laughs> writing a collection of fictional short stories is mm -hmm. like not the first path I would give to someone who wants to get started in humor writing. It's like a very small contained genre within the larger category of humor writing. Tell oh, me yes. about the format and how you got into oh, it. Oh, well, yeah, it is a small, it is a small genre. I am finding that out um, hugely firsthand. I mean, I got into it because I was just, I, it really started when I literally, a friend, my senior of college, told me about this website, McSweeney's. And I was like, what's that? And this was in 2007. And it was my first introduction to pointless, evergreen comedy pieces. Because mm -hmm. back then, even like like now, it seems like on McSweeney's when I check in, it seems like sort of like it's it's advocacy humor, you know, it, the kind that elicits clapter if you're in a, if you're watching like a late night show where it's like the kind of thing you clap at, but it's not necessarily a laugh, you know? Right. So back then it was sort of more evergreen stuff. That was my first, I didn't even know about short, really like short comedy writing. And then, and then I, I mean, it, you know, I discovered Simon Rich after college and really liked his evergreen comedy collections. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I mentioned him because there aren't a lot of these collections, Maris. And, you know, it's, and, and the thing is, is when you go to any, when I go to bookstores and I go to the humor section, mm -hmm. you know, it's a scary place. There's, <laughs> yes, you know, I mean, well, there's, there's books, they're, they're all different sizes. Suddenly, like all the books aren't even the same size. Correct. Some have fur, some have, like, there's all these, you know, lame, these lame gimmicks, you know? And I mean, I think that, you know, 
David Sedaris is early. Like he might now disavow this because actually I recently listened to your um, an old Jesse's episode now. with his. Yes, and he well, he really he really you know is so humiliated by some of his early stuff, which actually makes me feel dumb because I'm like, well, gee, I still think it's good, bro. So I guess I'm the dumb one here. But his his first book was um, short fiction, and Santillan Diaries was the only mm -hmm. memoir thing in it. I mean, there's that. There's an incredible collection by John Stewart called Naked Pictures of Famous People. Yeah. It's yeah, okay. It's it's there's two stories in there that are just I I come back to. They're so good, but yeah, I mean it's. I, I, I think it's an amazing genre. I love short stories. Of course, George Saunders' short story writing is so comedic. Yeah. Um, but since he touches on both, he is vaulted away from that scary humor section. So the touching on the both seems to be the path to respect. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I was having a conversation with Josh, my husband mm -hmm. last night, mm -hmm. and um, we were trying to name other uh, books in the genre. And it's, those are, you, you named all of the ones we could come up with. And we even like, we said like the New Yorker and McSweeney's, like where else would you even go to find this stuff? Publishers. Exactly. Exactly. And actually, and, and I'll, I mean, of course, Jack Handy's the one person I didn't mention mm -hmm. who is the king of this, but the, the a thing that Simon does and that I also try to do is, the, I mean, the form is pushed. And so these stories, they're longer, they have emotional cores and that is different from what you see on the New York and Rick Sweeney's. And so that's why it's hard to even say, gee, it's like this because you're right, yeah. Maris. Yeah. And then at the end of your collection, there's your 90 page story that it's like, where do you place a comic novella? <laughs> this Maris, is Maris. There's no other place. There's no other place. You're, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a comic novella. Um, and yeah, it's, you're so right because it's, I, I can't really think of other, other than Simon Rich has an amazing story called Sellout um, that was mm -hmm. serialized in the New Yorker mm -hmm. and uh, that's the only one I can think of. And the, I mean, I don't know why they're not super popular just because when I've read like the few that are out there that are successful, I just think it's so fun. And it makes me think of that. I recently re-encountered that Joan Rivers quote that when you make somebody laugh, you give them a vacation. Hmm. And it's like- We all need a know. vacation. <laughs> exactly. Was this your first time going longer with a- a, oh, yeah. a short yeah a short work it was it was when I started it I had I mean what gave me the initial germ of confidence was okay I was getting page-long things in the New Yorker and then then I broke it out and wrote maybe a seven pager and then it was like a 20 pager and then a 40 pager and then the big boy which was that which is the, the novella at the end yeah <laughs> but I mean each time I went longer I was like can I go longer, you know? And I, I recently even, I, I'm, I'm watching the um, Ernest Hemingway, the Ken Burns, Lynn, mm -hmm. what's her last name? Lynn something, um, PBS doc. And, you know, there's a moment when he's like, he's only written short stories, Ernest. And he's like, can I do a novel? Like, how do you <laughs> do that? How do you keep it going for that long? And essentially what I found coming from the world of TV and you know this so much with Josh, and so I'm interested because Josh must have been on a similar journey where in TV and then before that at The Onion, there is no room and no need for the interstitial world building that you have to do yeah. for, pace, for pacing. 
um, in a story, in fiction. And so I was like a baby, like, like just like getting up and starting to walk and being like, oh, my instinct always was, you don't need that, cut that, it's fat. Or you should end on a joke here. And so I right. had to keep fighting my, my like TV and onion instincts in this. And, but then the freedom was an insane artistic experience of just, I mean, I wonder if Josh feels the same way, the freedom you get with fiction, it's just, it's so fun. I, when I was reading the story, I was thinking like, this is what it must feel like to not be held back by any boundaries and just like getting, just writing exactly what you want to write. It's, oh, that's so cool, Maris. That's so cool you thought that. I know that's, that, on, and honestly in the beginning, because I kind of had a reputation at The Onion and at Colbert for being a writer who will go too far. You know, being a writer who don't ask her if we're going too far, she's not gonna, she's gonna say no, you know? So like, so I already had that rep and it was like, oh my God, like no one is telling me no because my editors were so cool and they were never telling me no. And I was like, so, so finding that out, that was what was exciting. And I was, and honestly, it was also scary because I was like, I, you almost have to like put on your big girl pants more because you can't blame it. Like, like when you write on a staff, there's so many people you can blame. Like it's their fault. It's, it's not my fault, but. So many guidelines and so many, yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's all about, you know, for the, what Steven likes and how. Oh how yeah, exactly. There, that's, that's a bit of a vacation. It's all about Steven's sensibility. And then before that, the onion sensibility. And it's a, a very established, successful sensibility. Yeah. So just squish yourself into that. And that's all you needed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the art of escalation. There, there are some, some stories in the collection that are like perfect encapsulate yes this is such a great question okay I love I love that because I assume that you've so many writer listeners and that's such a writer question mm -hmm. um I mean the I the, a few things immediately pop to mind the quick turn is certainly a comedy it's just a comedy sort of tool that that you that you try to use all the time so a very dramatic quick turn that can that can be an escalation I find that the biggest thing with escalation and and heightening and I started in improv so actually my language is from mm. improv and it's like you know heightening the game um that is that's what ends up making something funny I find that it's really about surprising yourself and um a lot of the time and I believe this is a Patton Oswalt observation it's, it's going from A to C and skipping over B. So you go to that third thought because for sure I am trying to surprise the reader. I first have to surprise myself. So that means a lot of discarding mm -hmm. um, of like, eh, that I, I thought of that too fast, like it's too obvious. And I guess, I guess another trick with escalation is just that I guess for the story to feel satisfying and feel like it's heightening in a in a way that is fun and surprising, but also makes sense, it all has to fit together and be germane and be of a piece. Yeah. So the I think that maybe a rookie thing or a or a basically just an ineffective thing is anything that's a left turn, because when I say surprise, it's not a left turn. It, it's it's surprising within a game, um, but yeah. So that's those are a few things I think. Yeah. No, that's great. And it's, 
one of the things that I keep thinking about with this collection is you can go different ways with what you do with the escalation. So like there's the real absurd, like nothing really matters anymore. People are dying. Um, like lives are being destroyed and right. it's for comedy. And then, and then you get to monster goo for, for example. Oh. And it escalates to a point where you still feel deeply invested in these characters and, and sad for oh. them. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that you felt that. It, indeed, that is what I've heard about that story. That story, Monster Goo, um, is my kind of um, retelling of, I, I was obsessed with Goosebumps as a kid. I don't know if you were an R.L. Stein person. Oh, that makes a kid. more sense now that you say it. <laughs> Of course. <laughs> yes. Okay. Of course. Yeah. So actually Monster Blood wasn't even one of my favorite ones, but uh, Monster Goo is based on um, his, Arl Stein's novel, YA novel Monster Blood. And um, I, I, I mean, yes, that, that ended up being such a sad story. And that was very much where I was learning to let there be sad moments and mm -hmm. accept a sad trajectory when I was fighting it. Because also, and this is so dumb and all long and all like, professional long term time writers know that these people that you write about become your friends and sure. they're you like it's 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 very upsetting to hurt them and you then want to save them which of course can can mess with your own with your artistic vision and so sometimes so I had to be like a big girl and just kind of like nut up and let the bad thing happen but um yeah that that story I mean the idea that sparked that story was just I well number one I love I love his writing. It's kind of, it almost reminded me before I'd ever read a screenplay as a child. It's almost mm. like reading a screenplay. It's almost like you, and I'm, I'm dropping all these things, but I recently read this Tony Gilroy who wrote all the Bourne screenplays, the Bourne Identity yeah. um, trilogy. He said that people described his screenplays as you fall through the story. You don't even read it. You just fall through it because it's so easy to read and see. And so, uh, you know, Mr. Stein, who, by the way, actually is a fan of the story. He loved it. I was so, he read it. It was so fun to hear him uh, like it. But yeah, I, I just thought like, oh, and those stories, uh, kids always get into like a supernatural scrape. The adults are peripheral characters. They don't even help. The kids solve it. But what if, I mean, I'm really old now. I don't have kids, but I was like, what if I had a kid and he got, and he made monster goo and he got big how would my life, my sex life with my husband, my career, how would our lives really be impacted? And so, yeah, doing that thought experiment and then seeing how would that actually play out and then to where it went. I mean, that it was fun to do, but yeah, I, I'm, so, I'm glad that you were moved, but oh, I, I know I, I was so sad. I was so sad. Yeah. And yeah, it's um, that emotion when you're reading a humor collection will slap you in the face. Oh. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And my editor at Random House, who's so smart, I love this dude. He was like- Andy? That, a, Andy and Ben, Ben <laughs> Greenberg and, and Ben, uh, Andy Ward and Ben Greenberg. And Ben said this to me, he was just like, you know, some of, he, he's so hands off and in like the chicest way, but he was like, you know, one of the only things he said was, you know, some of them can be sad. Like that's literally all he says. And I was like, yeah, okay. Like he really knows what he's talking about. And so I was like, you're right. And that's that kind of, you know, high, low, happy, sad thing that one hopes makes it seem like it's more than just a gag. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you, you brought up your editors. And so I, I, I read your acknowledgements and realized mm -hmm. that you had been working at Random House or with Random House mm -hmm. um, with Susan Camel. And I was wondering, oh. if would, yeah, talk a little bit. Her death has affected just so many people. Yes, and, um, yes, I know. I I was working with Susan. It was right at the beginning, and it was such it was such a gust of wind in my sails to have her enthusiasm in the beginning. She just seemed so she was so lovely and 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 um, warm and uh, and unfortunately, I I mean, she just read the the first early pages that Random House bought and was a big fan of those. And I was so. I was kind of like amazed because I, I know some of the huge books that she brought to them. Uh, I remember one was the, what is the Sweet Potato Gurney? You know, yeah. like the, and that's great. That's a great book, what the Sweet Potato Society or whatever. But these, the, you know, my stuff is just, it's so dark. And I mean, it seems so lame for me to say edgy, but I think it kind of feels <laughs> like that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I just thought it was so cool that she had the capacity to be really into that. Um, and I was just, I mean, unfortunately, oh God, it's so tragically she died. And I mean, I, I was so happy that I got to work with her briefly. And then, it, you know, but that was, that was, it, it took me two years to put the book together. And so I was just with her for the first few months. Yeah. Jen, another thing that I love that comes through both in your writing and the writing about you is that your whole vibe is capable, bright woman. And then and then all of a sudden you just like go dark. And yeah. tell me about that. Tell me about like, doing a bait and switch almost. <laughs> oh my God, Varys, it's so funny because you're right. It's, it's, oh my God, I'm getting all of these emails from my friends' parents who I totally baited and switched when I sent out like my big email being like, hey, I have a book and they all bought it. <laughs> and they're all talking to my friends and they're like, what, who is she? Have you, do you, is this her? Like, did I never know her? It's just so funny because it's, you're right. I mean, well, the thing is, is that yes, people end up saying, oh, what you write, what you do, it's so dark. And, you know, it can also be, yes, it can be sexually explicit, you know? Mm -hmm. And the only, th the only reason why my, you know, I bristle a little when it's like raunchy, even though I, I love, I love intentional bad taste, but yeah. when I, but like, but when I feel like it's intentional, it's like, well, is it bad taste? It was, it was employed expertly. You know, I'm not talking about myself. I'm thinking about the people that I love, like, you know, campy, I mean, John Waters, uh, other campy people. And so, yeah, the bait and switch, it, it is funny because there, like, I do remember, I mean, at Colbert, I would, I would write, there, there was one bit that I wrote where it was like, um, Stephen would sing a really sweet vanilla song, usually like a holiday novelty song. And then it would be crashed by the real life rap guru, Run the Jewels. And they would yeah. crash it and they would like sing a really, really dirty, like kind of hardcore sing a rap. But, um, <laughs> and anyway, so I wrote both of those and those, those were like always my babies. And it was, I do remember when the showrunner Chris was like, who wrote the raps? And someone said, Jen, and you know, <laughs> they, 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 there's, it is funny how people are so surprised, but it's like, I don't really know because I mean, I don't know. It's like, I, I've had such a good life, but then also dark stuff has also happened to me. Bad stuff has happened to me. And, um, you know, 
I just feel like even just walking around and waking up every single day and I know everyone I love's dying and I'm gonna die. That's already so dark and freighted that it's like, I'm like, really, my stuff's dark? Like everything is, everything is both. And so, yeah, but no, the bait and switch is fun because it always is a fun little, people are always surprised for some reason. I think it's cause I just am a friendly little fucker. And even just being, <laughs> even for comedy people, I think Maris, you know this the most. Yeah. Josh is also so, Josh and I are weirdly, let's play, let's be friends. Mm -hmm. And mo a lot of comedy people are not like that. Yes. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'll leave no. it at that. Um, <laughs> tell me about, uh, because I know that um, Josh, when he was writing his um, essay collection, it was kind of a big deal for him to ask John Oliver for a blurb. Tell me about getting Stephen oh, to write boy. an intro. Oh, oh yes. Oh, I thought you were asking about the blurb. No. Oh, so the blurbs are also big. But well, your are great. Thank you. No, they are great. And oh God, every ask shaves years off your life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Asks suck. It's funny that ask, I feel that asks suck, even though I've been, when I ask, there's so much, there's so much like I'm in turmoil. I don't want to do it. I'm horrified that I'm doing it. And then the people are so like totally sweet and happy to do it. And I'm like, what? With Steven, I was scared. I went to his office. His office is really fancy. It's really pretty. He has gorgeous, you know, fabric wallpaper. It's like a, it's a wonderful, special place. And, you know, I, I let him know that I was writing the book and I, I just said it would be an honor. And, you know, he just was like, it was so no big, you know? And I mean, and, and if I also was thinking, you know, I don't want to offend you. I think I said that, you know, I'll, I'll write it if you want, you know what I mean? Like, and, but he was like, no. And he insisted on writing it himself. He just gave it to me. So that was cool. And then, I mean, but, but yeah, the asking, like asking these incredibly, like these celebrities who I admire mm -hmm. and have some kind of relationship with for these, this, these blurbs, oh, it's rough, but then every, but then they're so, sweet about it so I don't know but I still don't enjoy that yeah I, well yeah <laughs> it all paid off in the end though right right um let's talk a little bit about the cover uh art for this book because I I just love the illustration um on the oh, cover nice. and it like really gets to the vibe of of the collection <laughs> It really, really does. Thank you. It's funny because this, the, the, the illustration on, on the cover, which is of a little girl and she's wearing like Mary Janes and socks and her head, she doesn't have a head and it, it sort of looks like her head exploded. Um, this was one of the first images that Random House showed me and I loved it. But then I fell in love with this other one that I was gunning for. And it was, it was an illustration of maybe like three or four 17th century, so 1600s, um, villagers, 17th century villagers, women and children fleeing in terror. And so it was just these like, you don't know what they're running from. They just look really scared and they're running and they're like the bonnets and the children and they're grabbing them. And I was like, oh, I love that. But, and then there was something else that they pitched me that was amazing with like a boar. It was like a magical boar who was like a prince and he was wearing like a fancy prince costume, but it was this really scary boar. And he was like, he was like, showing children some adventure. And I was like, oh, that's fun. But this thing, I'm glad that I went with this much cooler sort of like, you know, 
I, this just encompasses so much more. Yeah. And yeah, and so actually I know I'm thrilled because each story can fit into this. And the vibe is, it's kind of that, it kind of touches on my, this thing that I love, which is childlike innocence colliding with adult pain and optimism just grinding up against the indignity and the and like the the roughness of life and so yeah it it does kind of capture that and also and then Ben my editor was like white books sell okay he, oh. he we said white like 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 if it's like white like kind of less color I guess just because it's I don't know cleaner <laughs> and then of course I like the idea that this could show dirt more easily <laughs> yes come on exactly. I know even some of the ones in the in the box they sent me. I'm like, there's already a little scrape or something on it. Yeah, the white the white shows it all. That's that's very funny. <laughs> um, I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the title story because it, it it is such a joy. Um, tell me about what you were doing with it, mm, mm -hmm. and um maybe a little bit about uh, what happens when political correctness or cancel culture, whatever the hell you want to call it, mm -hmm. uh, rubs up against a, rubs up, that's, that is, I, I was going to say, no, that's not the right, but no, that's the right, uh, <laughs> yeah. a seen it all Hollywood starlet from the 1940s. Yes, yes. Well, that was, that is definitely the story that I'm, that I'm the proudest of because it was the most ambitious thing uh, and the thing that I was um, the most scared that I about not getting right. So, and I'm very happy with how it turned out, but um, it is, yes, it's, it's a, I'm obsessed with old Hollywood. And I also, since I, I also love film noir and um, I wanted to tell a rags to riches Hollywood story. Um, and I wanted to basically deconstruct that type of memoir while also telling a real story. So um, making fun of it while telling a real one. And so those were the two balls that I was kind of keeping in the air. Um, the inspiration for it was, I mean, I always in my mind, I, I mean, it was a few things. Um, I, I'm obsessed with this one actress, Barbara Stanwyck. She's like a film noir queen and, she had an incredible, Double Indemnity is maybe her most famous movie yet. And uh, she, her life, there, there was just, there was recently a huge biography published of her called Steel True. And, and the first volume doesn't even get you up to Double Indemnity. And it's like, you know, I don't know if it's like a thousand or 1500 pages, but um, her life is so hard. It's insane that she voted on herself and actually made it happen because every, she just, you know, she was so poor and no help. And I mean, and, and also as someone that was trying to get into showbiz and not knowing and knowing no one and not having any help, I felt parallels, even though my life was a thousand times cushier than hers. So, so that was it. My love of her was a germ. There's this pre-code 1930s movie called Babyface that she stars in where she kind of sleeps her way to the top. It's such a brutal movie. Actually, I think it was the movie that in, that like was the final movie that they let break all these rules. And then there was the Hayes Code where they were like, and they cited this movie as, this is why we need rules. Yeah, this, because it was so brutal. 
And then I'll just also mention there was an unbelievable interview with Ava Gardner in Vanity Fair in like, I don't know, 2013 or 12 or something. I could have read a hundred pages of it because her voice was so fun. And I was like, oh my God, I could hang out with that voice forever. And so that was the key to me, like the key to making this work for me was figuring out how breezy and conversational it wanted to be. And then once I clicked into that, it worked and it really took me, it, it took me well over a year to figure that out. Um, and so, but yeah, so, so the thing that's fun is that it's a fish out of water story about a woman who is woke for 1941, who gets dropped into now and has to make it in modern day Hollywood and claw her way back to the top. And she is from 1941. And so it's like, I thought that clash could be comedically rich. And I was aware of the minefield that I was navigating honestly, in every sentence and yeah. the word choice and the frequency of deploying the words. Oh my God. It was, it was there. There was a lot of care and thought behind that because sure. I, I'm definitely not, I'm, cause I'm not, I was afraid that it might seem like I was making fun of woke culture. And I, I am not making fun of woke culture. I, I, because actually Ruby, our main character, the, the actress, the film actress who is trying to make it today, she, a magical thing happens and she gets flung into the future. So she's in the future and she, her heart is in the right place yeah. and she wants to be woke for now. And she's learning. It's just that her learning and is, is, and watching her learn in real time is, um, is funny because she doesn't always get it right. And I, I felt like I, at least could make sure that people knew where I, the author stood yeah. by having the chorus of modern day people correct yeah. her and reflect their own rage or horror at her thoughts. Jen, tell me what else you've been reading lately. Oh, I love this question. And I am so excited to tell you one thing I've been reading, this is totally new, didn't know about it, feel stupid for not knowing about it. Roald Dull's um, stories for adults. He, oh, you know, so I, he wrote, he wrote stories for adults before the kid stuff. And I kind of knew he did it. I didn't really care. I never sought it out. I am blown away and I'm furious. I just can't believe I haven't found these. I, I literally just found a collection. It's not anything special. It's like, it's an, it's just a, a big collection of his, um, biggest awesome short stories. And there's one called The Visitor. So I really would recommend if anyone wants to, to get the collection that has the story, The Visitor. It's unbelievable. Um, so that's an old thing that I was reading. That's so cool. funny, Jen, because I just start, I keep thinking of like the, the story about, uh, that's told from a variety of points of view at a murder mystery party. And, and yes. one of the main the main guy, the first guy, is uh, just a blatant anti-Semite. And oh. I, I mean, he calls someone a bagel eater at some point. It's just like, <laughs> I just think that's so funny. I'm um, so glad you think that, yeah. And and of course, um, Roald Dahl is like, could be, could be the narrator. <laughs> totally. You are so right. Well, that one, that one was based on, I was actually in England listening to in the car and then there were none, which is this amazing Agatha Christie book. And it's like within the first few minutes, there are such, she just goes on all these off ramps, these gratuitous off ramps with these incredibly anti-Semitic descriptions. And it's like, 
what the hell? They're, they're really <laughs> distracting. It was, it was distracting to the story. And that's what gave me the idea of, oh, what if there was a narrator who was so distractingly anti-Semitic or sexist or ableist or whatever. So um, yeah, but no, I, I know, I, I wanna see actually, I know of course that Roald um, hated Jews, but it's funny, it just doesn't, when it's so good, it's like, well, eh, yeah, but that's bad, that's bad. <laughs> Let me go on the record. <laughs> I'm glad you came out again. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't tell from the book. <laughs> So I interrupted exactly. you. What? Oh, oh, the other, yes. yes. Let me, okay, well, I will recommend this only because it's like, was super new to me too, even though it's old. This, this, this is a humorous essay collection called Please Don't Eat the Daisies by Jean Kerr. I didn't know about this. This was like the biggest thing in 1954. Mm. There's a movie starring Doris Day. That There's a play. Yeah. Yes, okay. It's, it feels very modern, very fresh, and it's very funny. And then um, I will simply, I mean, I know you I know you just talked to Trisha Lockwood. No one is talking about this. It's her new novel. And I'll recommend that too, just because when you want luminous writing, that's just brilliant next level writing. I mean, she, she delivers. Indeed. Yeah. Jen, thank you so much. Maris, thank you. Can I ask what you're reading for me? I mean, I know you just read this, but. I am I'm I'm reading for the show. I am okay. reading a great big fat novel um, called Great Circle that comes mm. out next month by Maggie Shipstead. And it is everything I want in a novel that I want to just like get lost in, absolutely like fly away. Whoa, yeah. I like to fly away. That's awesome. Okay, Great Circle. Great circle. Thank you. Yay, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.